Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Macro View. Tonight's episode is about income inequality. And I just want to say that uh, I want to start out by saying that income equality is not something that I or you should want. Income equality means that the cashier at your local grocery store makes as much per hour as the surgeon performing your quadruple bypass. Obviously, when taken to this extreme, nobody, nobody would say that it makes sense. Nobody values the job that your local grocery store cashier does as much as they value the job of a surgeon. And thus, they make different amounts of money. What a lot of people do not realize, including top earners themselves, is that advocating that top earners have more taken from them, which creates an effective ceiling on incomes for a wide range of career choices, and that bottom earners must earn a minimum of X per hour, effectively setting a floor on incomes for a wide range of job opportunities, has nasty unintended consequences. We absolutely must stop with the notion that humans are exempt from the laws of supply and demand. We must stop with the notion that income is a function of greed for the highest paid and a function of lack of power or being taken advantage of uh, for the lowest. Income is a function of demand for the labor service offered and the supply of that labor offered after accounting for what else could be done with the incomes paid or uh, what's also known as the alternative uses of the capital. Incomes or wages are simply prices, and prices send signals. They tell producers what to produce, and every single human is a producer of, an accumulator or investor in, human capital. This human capital, the skills, knowledge, experience, the reliability, the reputation, the attitude, the character, and all sorts of other potential value propositions that an individual can boast about on their resume are what allow people to charge the prices for the labor they offer to the consumers of their labor, also known as employers. That price, however, has to be a price at which the increased production that the consumer of the labor, the employer, receives offers a return on their total capital investment greater than that of the alternatives. The total capital investment of hiring a new employee is not just simply the salary paid or the income paid and the alternatives of what could be done with that salary and what's foregone by paying that salary. It's also the time and money costs of training, of benefits, of increased tax burdens, of increased regulatory costs, and much more. All those costs combined must be less than the value received from the increased production in order for an employer to be willing to pay for employment. In other words, an employer must receive a return on their total capital investment in the new employment that is greater than the alternatives after accounting for the total costs. Sometimes, from an employee's standpoint, the human capital that they own can take years to develop. Or in other words, a massive investment of both monetary and time costs can be made in order to develop the skills, the knowledge, experience, etc. And this decision to invest in certain types of human capital for oneself or for a loved one is typically guided in a market economy of educated people, at least in large part, by the ability to sustain a higher standard of living in the future once the skill is developed. That ability to sustain a higher standard of living, or at least the perception of that, is based on the the price signal that the market sends to future employees considering what kind of training that they should obtain. This could work out, 
or their skill could become obsolete as a result of technology and they could lose money on their capital investment just as any investor in anything. This price signal is vital. And the price signal of wages comes with an additional calculation to be made in an educated world. That is the after-tax wages. In a world where politicians and the media claim massive income inequality from a standpoint of earnings brackets, what we're basically saying is that prices are getting it totally wrong. And what we need to do is have government decide where resources should be allocated and actually have government allocate resources to what the market is saying are less productive uses by essentially creating artificially higher annual wage rates for low productivity jobs and artificially creating low annual wage rates for the high productivity jobs when you consider after taxes. People who make high incomes make high incomes because their professions are in high demand, whether it's directly by consumers or whether it's by employers that are willing to pay that high income because their return on capital, it's also because people in the profession may have many alternatives that offer, offer either higher incomes or slightly lower incomes with more free time. This, infor- this forces the employers or the consumers of the labor to pay enough to capture their time. It's not just true for the ultra-high income jobs or for the low-wages jobs. This is true of all labor. Now, to be very clear, income is not equivalent to happiness. People should pursue their happiness. And far too often, people make the mistake in their pursuit of happiness of pursuing purely income or wealth as a means to a happy ending. And unfortunately, folks, unless you're planning on on visiting a sleazy massage parlor, happy endings and how much money you have or make do not correlate. Income is simply a price which, like all things, is driven by supply and demand. When prices of a certain profession are relatively higher than another, i.e. the return on the investment to the person pursuing the skills needed for the profession significantly exceed that of another profession, then more people will enter that profession up and until the point that alternatives offer the same or a better rate of return on investment. And that's at least in large part. People do also pursue, p- pursue professions because they enjoy the profession. Prices just give signals. And when allowed to work, they can quickly reallocate scarce resources with alternative uses to the uses that best serve consumer demand. And we're all consumers. So basically the general market demand, what, market is actually, what the market is actually saying needs to be produced. That's based on the price that consumers are willing to pay at today's supply level. Up and until the price reaches a point where the alternative uses of the scarce resource in question offer a price that allows producers or suppliers of the good to achieve a greater profit by reallocating that resource back to the alternative use, they're going to invest in that one particular use. And this applies to widgets. It also applies to labor, period. Humans are not exempt from prices driven by supply and demand. This is the Macro View, and I'm your host, Andrew Smith. Glad to have you with us tonight. We've got a great show for you, everybody. We're going to be discussing income inequality, which we already have a little bit in the introduction. And then we're going to uh, close out by discussing the record profit to the absolute evilness of the level of profit companies currently enjoy, according to the mainstream media. 
Um, and as a result, the opinion of most Americans, there's uh, there's actually a poll out that, uh, that we're going to talk about. It's a little bit of an old poll, but it's something that's interesting, kind of goes along with the conversation. So we're going to bring that up. But there are a number of myths that we're going to discuss tonight. We're going to try to debunk. And the first is that income inequality is worse than ever before. And uh, this is a myth that's, that's almost constantly perpetuated by the media, but increasingly it became more and more perpetuated by the media after the New York Times bestselling book, uh, Capital in the 21st Century by Thomas Piketty. A book really rode the populist wave of uh, Barack Obama and others like Senator Liz Warren, who like to preach that the wealthy just keep getting wealthier at the expense of the struggling middle class and the lower class. And while it is true that the top 1% is doing just fine, I mean, that's true of any system. The difference is that the opportunity to climb into the top 1%, if you're not in the top 1% at birth as an American, is far greater than almost any country on earth. You know, really other than a handful, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia, New Zealand, uh, who actually embrace free market systems more than we do here, uh, I'd also throw probably Chile and, and up and coming uh, as an up and coming uh, country that could probably get there. They have some issues because they uh, are in a, a, a very poor place to live in terms of the geography and geology of the earth and that there are uh, very large earthquakes almost every year. Uh, but Canada is, is, is right there next to us, especially when they're under um, sort of their version of the the uh, you know conservative uh, type government where they're they're not doing too much to intervene in the economy and they do believe in free markets. Uh, Canada's economy does a little bit better. Switzerland's another one. Typically, for the most part, tends to be a pro free market country and a little bit more than America even. Uh, and and again, great mobility in all those countries I just mentioned. But they're all right next to us in terms of climbing, you know, the opportunity to climb up the social ladder. And the fallacy that, that uh, you know, Mr. Piketty uses in his book in order to try to kind of secure this myth is that R is greater than G or that the return, the rate of return to capital is greater than the growth rate of the entire uh, economy. It's deeply flawed, um, deeply flawed theory. I mean, it's not, not only not true. And within his book, in order to c- come up with this and support this theory, uh, not only did he grossly overstate returns to capital, but he overstated re- gross returns to capital. Uh, so it's kind of a little bit ironic there. Uh, you know, he, he did not account for net returns to capital and basically didn't account for volatility or riskiness. He didn't account for de- depreciation. Um, there are a number of things they didn't account for. We're going to talk about them a little bit here tonight, but we're also going to talk a little bit about why, you know, maybe income inequality isn't as bad as people think it is and the biggest deals. I mean, let's start out here just kind of going through debunking this myth um, by using, a, you know, some quotes from, from a study that was done by the Cato Institute. Uh, it was called Five Myths of Income Inequality. And I'm going to be quoting uh, extensively a little bit here. Uh, from this study, and I'll let you know when I'm, I, I finish the final quote. Uh, there's also the potential for a quote within this quote. Um, they quote other uh, economists from you know, different uh, well-known institutions throughout the country. And starting off, um, 
basically you know, what they're talking about here is how Mr. Pickety uh, really botched his analysis and uh, didn't account for a number of things. And first off, in, to start the quote, quote, Massachusetts Institute of Technology economist Matthew Rogney and others have pointed out housing, that is home price appreciation, accounts for almost all the long-term increase in the net capital share of income. By failing to correctly account for the role of housing, Piketty's model fails to explain the true dynamics of wealth. Further, Lawrence Summers, and not quoting right here when I say this, who many of us remember from the Clinton administration, he's one of Clinton's lead economic advisors. Obama also had him in his administration for a short period of time, and then he left and stepped down. Uh, but Summers is by no means a right-wing extremist. <laughs> he is uh, typically probably a centrist and popular economist, modern popular economist. Uh, for the most part. But going back to the quote, Lawrence Summers suggests that when it comes to elasticities of substitution and diminishing returns to capital, Piketty, quoting Summers, misreads the literature by conflating gross and net returns to capital. The elasticity of substitution between capital and labor is critical for Piketty's mechanism. If this elasticity is not greater than one, then a higher ratio of capital to income is associated with a lower share of capital income. Defining this term is also crucial, particularly the distinction of whether the measure is in gross or net terms. The net return is the gross minus depreciation, and by subtracting depreciation, net is mechanically lower than gross. When discussing the distribution of the control of resources, the net term is more relevant, as Piketty acknowledges in the book, saying savings used to cover depreciation simply ensure that the existing capital stock will not decrease and cannot be used to increase capital stock. Rognally provides a simple illustrative example to help understand this distinction between net and gross terms. Quoting Rognally, if someone earns $1 in revenue from renting out a building but loses 40 cents as the building deteriorates, her command over resources has only increased by 60 cents. Focusing then on the more relevant net term, Summers argues that, quote, it is plausible that as the capital stock grows, the increment of output produced declines slowly, but there can be no question that depreciation increases proportionally. I know of no study suggesting that measuring output in net terms, the elasticity of substitution is greater than one. Focusing on the more relevant net term, which accounts for depreciation, it does not seem plausible that higher shares of capital would then lead to more capital accumulation due to diminishing returns. Another professor from University of California, Berkeley, economist Alan Auerbach and Kevin Hassett of the American Enterprise Institute also criticized Piketty's failure to consider risk and volatility in calculating the rate of return to capital. Using assumptions based on a simulation model developed by the National Bureau of Economic Research, again, not a right-wing extreme group. The National Bureau of Economic Research is typically left, left-leaning, again, popular economics, modern popular economics, which is a political version. It's political economics. It's not real economics. It's, uh, it, it's a study of how, the, how politicians 
can use economics essentially to manipulate things. And this is typically what they're looking at. What types of policies can be can manipulate the economy in a way that would be politically beneficial and would would lead to, you know, essentially less potential for unrest in the worst case scenario. Uh, you know, but what the MBER concludes is that post-tax returns to total capital or to capital remain substantially lower than growth in gross national product. Further, Chairman Jason Furman of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors and others have suggested that labor income, this is Obama's economic advisor, uh, labor income plays a bigger role in the growth of inequality, if you want to call it inequality, than returns to capital, which is what Piketty suggested, returns to capital, create a larger uh, inequality. Furman and former director of the CBO, Peter Orzag, estimated that roughly two-thirds of the increased share of income going to the top 1% since 1970 is attributable to the increase in labor income inequality. Finally, in a journal of economic perspectives, MIT economist Darren Asmoglu, Asmoglu, I don't think it's Asmoglu, but Asmoglu, and University of Chicago economist and political scientist James Robinson note that while readers of Piketty's book may be given the impression that evidence supporting his proposed laws of capitalism is overwhelming, he does not present even a basic correlation between RNG, that is, the return to capital and uh, the growth in the economy, and changes in inequality, much less an explicit evidence of a causal effect. These economists ran cross-country regressions to analyze the relationship between top-level inequality and the gap between RNG, whereas Piketty's theory would predict a significant positive relationship between the two, they find a statistically insignificant negative estimate. Some of these criticisms have been answered with greater or lesser satisfaction, while others have, been, have not been answered at all by Mr. Piggy. And it is important to note that other less heralded critiques of inequality have avoided some of Mr. Piketty's errors while reaching similar conclusions regarding inequality um, and about the general increase in market income inequality. However, such technical debates while important, miss a much more fundamental problem with claims of record inequality. Most claims that income inequality is at record high in the United States, including Piketty's, are based on a measure of market income, which does not take into account taxes or transfer payments or changes in household size or composition. The failure to consider those factors considerably overstates the effective levels of inequality. He also doesn't account for age, which we'll talk about in tonight's show. What the pundits, politicians, and others fail to understand, this is still quoting this Cato study, is that the U.S. tax and transfer system is already highly redistributive. Taxes, and progress, taxes are progressive and significantly so. The top 1% of tax filers earn 19% of U.S. income. But in 2013, they paid 37.8% of federal income taxes. The inclusion of other taxes, payroll, sales, property, and so on, reduces this disparity but does not eliminate it. A report from the CBO estimates that the top 1% paid 25.4% of all federal taxes in 2013, compared to 15% of pre-tax income. The wealthy pay a disproportionate amount of taxes. 
At the same time, lower-income earners benefit disproportionately from a variety of wealth transfer programs. The federal government alone, for example, currently funds more than 100 anti-poverty programs, dozens of which provide either cash or in-kind benefits directly to individuals. Federal spending on these programs approached $700 billion in 2015, and state and local governments added another $300 billion. Later in this episode, we're going to discuss that ends ends the quote from the uh, Cato paper. Later in this episode, we're going to discuss the specific concept of R uh, being greater than G in greater detail with some really great insight courtesy of yours truly and uh, my facts at Terminal from uh, you know, my business. Uh, but, but built within these criticisms that I quoted, there are some additional criticisms that should be brought to light um, regarding this, what I would call political trash that Mr. Piketty tried to pass for legitimate science. Um, which mainstream media really just thrusted in the face of Americans who until very recently have typically by and large trusted the uh, ultra political media machine that really truly despises markets, uh, even though they benefit greatly from them, typically despise them. Uh, One of the criticisms was that Mr. Piketty did not account for the fact that our system is already highly redistributive. He only looked at income from employment and did not account for the income and the benefits the individuals in the bottom two quintiles receive, and really in the bottom three quintiles, but primarily in bottom two quintiles uh, in terms of income receive. And in 2012, according to the Tax Foundation, families in the bottom quintile earned about 9500 bucks from employment and gained on average a net redistribution of $27,000 in cash and cash-like benefit programs after accounting for any potential taxes paid from the employment. And at that level of income, there'd be no taxes paid on the federal level. In the second quintile of income earners, they earned an average of $31,000 and received an additional net redistribution of $18,000 to equal total effective income of $49,192. And the third quintile, people that are in the top 60% of earners in America, earning about $57,000 a year, receive a net redistribution of $9,700 for an after-tax take-home pay that's much closer to $67,000. The top two quintiles receive net losses from taxes and uh, the tax and redistribution policies. And the fourth quintile, those that are in the top 40%, but not in the top 20% or higher, lose over 4% of their income to redistribution, directly to redistribution. The top 20% lose about 28% of their income to redistribution. And if you go even further, those in the top 1% lose close to 41% of their income in tax in, in, because of tax and redistribution, just from directly from redistribution. This accounts for both federal, state, and local uh, welfare spending programs, taxes and welfare spending programs. And uh, the wealthy already pay more than their fair share. If you just look at their, those numbers right there, way more than fair share. Giving up more than two-fifths of your earnings each year and an inefficient welfare spending is egregious. I'm not going to get into the inefficiencies of the welfare system tonight. I think I did episode three. You can go and check out if you want to hear my take on reforming welfare. First, I want to just keep going through these numbers. If you're watching our slideshow, our second chart shows that income share of total national market income pre and post redistribution by quintile is a column chart. 
And then after you reach the top 20%, it breaks it down to the top 10, the top 5, the top 1%. And yes, the top 1% make up a pre-redistribution share of total national income that's larger than the middle class. It's also larger than the bottom 40% of income uh, earners combined. And yes, pre-redistribution shares of total market income among the top 20% is greater than the bottom 80%. But for this, you may need to go back to the discussion um, that we first had, the, the introduction and the logic of the income that we discussed and how it's just a function of prices. And that is simply that the, the 100% of the people demand the skills of, and labor of the top 20%, far greater than 100% of the people demand the skills and labor of the bottom 80%. At the same time, the top 20% of people, those with the skills to earn that income, are few and further between. That price sends signals to the next generation as to what they're to focus their time and efforts on and at what cost to achieve it. Further, the lowest quintile today has the same, this is, I believe, the third chart, the same consumption power that they had in 2010, five years ago, uh, six years ago, excuse me. Uh, and that's relative to the other quintiles. The middle quintile, however, their consumption ability has receded a little bit. Uh, well, well, the top quintiles have increased just slightly. Um, the, the fifth slide tonight, though, is probably the most interesting and it shows the mobility from quintile to quintile regarding where you're born and where you end up. And two-thirds of those born into the bottom 20% of households in terms of their parents' income will end up in a higher income quintile. I mean, that's a lot. So you know, two-thirds of those born into the bottom 20% of households in terms of their parents' income will end up in an income quintile higher compared to only 52% of those in the second quintile, 40% in the middle quintile, and only a third of those in the top 40% will make it in the top 20% or stay in the top 20% with respect to those born in the top 20%. Now, it is true only 8% of those in the bottom quintile will make it to the top. And it's also true that progressively, as you step up the quintile ladder, your chances get better and better to make it into the top 20%. 38% of the top 20%, however, will be made up of people whose parents are currently receiving redistributions. This actually holds true if you look at people just 10 years later that are in the same family as their parents earn a higher income. It's if, if, you're born later, a little bit later on, your, your parents have made it up to the top 1% throughout their careers, you're more likely to not exceed them. So, you know, both at the bottom and the top, you know, these circumstances tend to typically hold true. And of course, there's people who break those, you know, break through those, uh, uh, you know, these basic aspects of, of uh, you know, income earning. But, you know, this is the, these are the stats. You know, these are the stats. These are, of course, aim for whatever you want to aim for, but these are the stats. Most people in the bottom will be much better off in the future than they are today. Most people in the top, born into the top, will not be. It becomes much progressively harder to exceed your, what your parents uh, are earning relative to the rest of the population. Um, 
So the myth that, that you know, high income is perpetual amongst families, you know, 63% of those born in the top 20% will not remain in the top 20%. And 40% of them will fall into the bottom 60%. From an absolute mobility standpoint or from a dollar, from just purely inflation-adjusted dollar points not moving up in quintiles, just inflation-adjusted dollar terms, 70% of the top quintile earners will, will earn more than their parents. You know, people born into the top quintile, 70% of them will earn more than their parents. However, 93% of those born into the bottom quintile will earn more than their parents. The second, third, and fourth quintile average about 86%. Now, what this means is that 30% of the top quintile do not, born into the top quintile, do not earn more than their parents. Whereas only 7% of the bottom quintile, those born into the bottom quintile, do not earn more than their parents. The difference between the 30, 30% and 7%, by the way, folks, is not 23%. It's far greater than that. It's actually a little bit bigger than, a little bit larger than 425% difference. Maybe you come up with that number by dividing 30% by 7%. It's 428.6%. And, you know, if we were going to take that, you know, those numbers, you know, we're going to just use actual numbers, not just divide 30% by 7%. Let's just assume that across quintiles, childbirth is evenly distributed. So out of the 4 million babies born in 2010, okay, out of the 4 million babies born in 2010, there's 800,000 born in each quintile. Now, obviously, that's not true, right? Most people in the higher quintiles tend to be older, which is something that Mr. Pickety doesn't adjust for. Typically, you reach the top 1% or top 10% or top 20%. You reach that. Um, but let's just assume. Let's just assume that there is totally equal distribution in regards to childbirth amongst the different uh, income quintiles in America. That means that there's 800,000 babies born in each quintile. Okay. Now, out of the 800,000 babies born in the top 20%, 240,000 of them will not earn more than their parents, whereas out of the 800,000 babies born into the bottom 20% will only earn, well, only 56,000 of them will not earn more than their parents, okay? So 240,000 divided by 56,000 is 4.286, which would be 428.6%. So clearly, absolute mobility for the bottom 20% is greater than those at the top from an opportunity to advance standpoint. Um, now, what we have, you know, what we have, we have seen that those in the bottom, born to the top 20% have the hardest time reaching the same income levels and exceeding the income levels of the parents, whereas those at the bottom have the easiest. So the idea that, that wealth is perpetual in some sort or high incomes are or perpetual amongst generations is just simply not true. Next myth uh, that we're going to bust is that the that rich people have far greater access for far longer to technological advancement uh, than do those with less money. Now, of course, initially, uh, it, the first is true. Wealthy people tend to be able to take advantage of new technology that is expensive to produce as a result of extremely high R&D costs, research and development costs. Uh, but recent business history has shown that the tendency of high-tech companies 
is once a market's proved with wealthy people, very slightly proved, doesn't even have to be proved very, very, uh, very well. They typically go immediately to capital markets, raise a large amount of capital, massive capital investments to begin mass producing this new technology at a much lower marginal cost per unit. And therefore, they increase their profit. They increase productivity of employees, eventually leads to lower cost for consumers, i.e. accessed amongst the non-wealthy, while simultaneously being able to pay their employees more, offer more benefits to their employees. And this has been true of nearly every industry. Okay, It's not just high tech. It's true in high tech as well. But it's true in biotech. It's true in almost every industry. This is what companies try to do. Every single new industry inherently starts out as a luxury industry. It's an industry in which there's a lot of R&D, and the current supply won't nearly meet the demand of consumers until you're able to increase the productivity from improving your market, making money, being able to raise money, being able to raise that money and put that money into capital investments that will increase your, your productivity. What ends up happening is that consumers bid the price up of this new technology to a point where only those at the top end of the income spectrum can really afford it. That higher price, though, and the subsequent profits that could be made by producing significantly more units of the new technology at even a significantly lower price will drive producers of the technology to raise capital, make large capital investments, and produce more at a better per unit production cost to seek that profit. And it's true unless they have a monopoly and monopolies really can only exist in one of two ways, either intellectual property rights, which can block producers, which we'll focus on here and government barriers to entry, which we will not touch uh, here, but we will uh, discuss many, many times on this show. And the reason I want to stick with the former is that there are many people out there who think that this is the kind of evil monopoly. Someone, you know, government monopoly is kind of sanctioned, and we need that. And we'll talk about that a number of times on the show and why that's a disastrous idea. But this is the evil. You know, some, some inventor holding out some world-changing technological development or life-saving medical development and charging such outrageous prices that only the wealthiest of the wealthy could possibly afford this. That greedy monopolist charging outrageous prices approach really only makes sense, makes business sense for the greedy monopolist if there's no economy of scale whatsoever that can be achieved by making large capital investments to increase the number of units produced and simultaneously decrease the per unit production costs. And under this business model, for whatever reason, no matter how much capital investment you make and no, no matter how, how much uh, you try to increase uh, productivity and efficiency and reduce the per unit production cost, you're just not able to achieve that economy of scale. So whether you make one unit a year and sell one unit a year, or whether you make 100 million units a year and sell 100 million units a year, your per, per unit production costs are exactly the same. Um, now, if that were not the case, and, and they still were holding out on it, they basically make no money. And as soon as the patent expired, they make very, very little money. Competitors would step in and, and replicate the technology. Uh, you know, they'd do it for commercial purposes. 
and they do so in a manner consistent with what was discussed in regards to deploying capital investments to increase the units produced and decrease the per unit production cost. We actually saw this happen very recently with 3D printers. And 3D printers for a very long time were basically a novelty that you really only found at like theme parks and zoos and shit. And you got a little, you know, Rhino 3D printed. And when the patents expired, a blitz of competition found use of the 3D printers. The printers, though, it just those those uses had never even been thought thought about before. And telephones, electricity, radio sets, televisions, VCRs, CD players. Back then, they were all far far more difficult for people to obtain because of the higher price, for far longer than smartphones and tablets are. Even early cell phones, you really only saw amongst upper middle class and or drug dealers. But now, you know, computers, smartphones, tablets. You know, much quicker, much quicker adoption. Um, part of that has to do with free trade. That's not what this episode is about. But on slide seven, uh, it kind of shows this, and you get a really good picture of uh, you know what that kind of looks like. The final income inequality myth that we're going to bust tonight is that the wealthy don't earn their money. A lot of mainstream media and political figures love to talk about how uh, the wealthy make their money by stepping on the backs of others and getting paid for the blood, sweat, and the tears of the middle class and the lower classes and the working class and many other such cliches. And fact is about 40% of the income earned by the top 10% of U.S. citizenry in terms of net worth, the actual wealthy, the top, top, uh, you know, the top 100, uh, you know, out of the top 100, you know, if America were a country of 100 citizens, it would be the top 10 in terms of their total net worth. 40% of their income comes from wages, from working. About 20%, and by the way, there's 314 million people, so the top 10% is the top 31.4 million people. Let me repeat that. There's 314 million people in America. The top 10% are the top 31.4 million people. And about 20% of their income, 40% comes from wages, 20% comes from either uh, businesses that they own, self-employment, and or farming. And capital gains make up a widely varying degree of the top uh, 10% deciles average income. And in fact, at times, social security payments actually make up a greater share of the top decade decile in terms of their in terms of net worth the wealthiest 10 percent of americans social security payments actually make up a greater share than capital gains at times I, and which if you really really think about it that's pretty disgusting that middle class and, and lower class and and young people struggling to get ahead are actually sending a piece of their paycheck to a retired top 10 percenter a real top 10 percenter not not this you know, we are the 99%, they are the 1% in terms of income, which we'll talk about a little bit at the end of the show, but not in terms of income. The actual top, the 31.4 million wealthiest people in America are taking, or at times, earning more from payments made out of the paychecks of people that are working and remember, Social Security is a regressive tax. 
because it, there's limits on it. So the more that you earn, the smaller percentage of your income that it actually is. So regressively, lower income earners are actually sending at times more money to the top 10% in terms of the wealthiest people in the country than they are receiving from uh, realized sale, you know, capital gains from sales of investments where they make a profit. And we're going to take a break here for just uh, about probably a minute or so, maybe about two minutes. And uh, if, if, if this is if you're listening live, if you're listening on, on one of the different uh, various distribution outlets that our uh, podcast goes to, you won't hear the break. Um, but eventually this will be a spot where, where advertisers will, will have an opportunity. If you're an advertiser who thinks that uh, our, our type of audience is uh, we have very transparent pricing on our advertising um, and it's a per impression model. And if, you know, if you think that, that if, if you're an advertiser who thinks that your uh, key demographics or your key uh, target audience would be people that would enjoy this show, reach out to us. Uh, you can reach out to us on Blog Talk Radio or on Podbean, or you can reach out to us on our Facebook page. Uh, you can reach out to me directly via my email. Uh, if, if you are able to get a hold of that, there are a number of ways that you can uh, reach out to us to try to get more information on, uh, on advertising. And very, very soon, our website is being worked on. Um, very, very soon, our website, I believe within the next two weeks, should be going live. Uh, it's something that, that uh, we're working away on on our end, and we want to get it to you as soon as possible so that you have all the charts. If you're going back, you're listening to this on Podbean, you know, you can switch over to our website and you can listen to the website directly and you can actually follow along with, uh, you know, when I talk about slides, that's on Blog Talk Radio on the live show. If you're listening in later on, you know, there's, there's a slideshow that goes along with this episode and those slides will also be on our website account and, and, and there will also be a blog post, short blog post, just kind of highlighting what we're talking about and uh, highlighting a little bit more. If I don't talk about something that I want to bring up um, about a specific chart, it'll be on there as well. So we're going to take a little bit of a break here and uh, we will be back in about two minutes. All right. Now we are back and better than ever. And now on to uh, one of my more uh, favored topics, uh, which is the American misperception of corporate profits. Yeah, profits are, according to the media and American levels, at villainous, villainous levels. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. How can companies be making that much profit? And profits is just it's an evil word. The general public uh, perception is that America's corporations make an extreme amount of profit from doing business. Um, that's far from reality. A recent root poll combined with data from Yahoo Finance shows actually a stark difference between uh, public perception and reality. And this is on uh, our, our next slide, believe it's slide eight. Americans believe that the average profit mar margins of American corporations, that is the percentage of every dollar of sales that makes it to the quote unquote bottom line, is 36%. The fact is, is that the average profit margin across 212 different industries, or in what it actually is, sub-industries, 
is actually six and a half percent. And the median across the same cohort is seven and a half percent. So just very slightly higher. The evilest of evil of all evil companies, the oppressive Walmart, only has a profit margin of 3.1% as of the date shown on the chart on uh, slide nine. And let's think about what is the industry that everybody loves to hate. We all know it. It's oil. Oil companies are always making a record profit, right, according to the media. General perception, I mean, of course, last year they, they did pretty terrible, but uh, general perception about oil companies, if, if most Americans think that, that you know, the average American corporation makes a 36% profit margin, well, gosh, can't imagine what they think about oil companies. They must think that they earn 90% profit margin. The fact is they actually average a 6.5% profit margin, right in line with the average of all other uh, sub-industries. And pharmaceutical companies, which benefit from extendable crony patents and special deals with the U.S. government, as well as among the strictest and costliest barriers to entry of almost any industry, I mean, it could legitimately take 10 years to bring a new drug to market. And while there are efforts to increase the FDA's swiftness or to give them the grant exemptions for potential life-saving drugs for fatal illnesses with no existing cure, the fact is, is that it's extremely expensive to run trials and to wait for the final approval. Now, with all the regulation combined with how much money, the, how much the end consumer comes out of pocket for buying them, we have to imagine that their profit margins have got to be actually really low. Quite the contrary, though. The intense barriers to entry make it so costly to compete for certain cures for certain diseases or illnesses that a single company is, is often the only company allowed to produce said cure. It's an effective monopoly on specific disease cures. Pharma companies actually enjoy a 16% margins, while still significantly lower than public perception mark, over 250% greater than the average among all companies. Much of this can be attributed to the lack of competition, which allows companies to charge monopoly prices. And that's a government barrier to entry uh, reason for having a lack of competition. What we've clearly and factually displayed here tonight is that A, incomes are prices, they're prices for labor, they're also known as wages. B, both relative and absolute mobility are greater for the bottom 60% than the top 20% or top 40%. Children born into the bottom 60% have a greater chance at moving up as well as a lower chance of moving down than those in the top 40%, even more so than those in the top 20%. We've also learned C, current welfare system is highly redistributive as it is today. D, the wealthy by and large through wages and self-employment do earn their money. Companies are nowhere near as profitable as people tend to think they are. Industries with significantly greater barriers to entry tend to have higher profit margins, especially if total cost of regulatory approval and ongoing compliance is exclusive. But what we've yet to discuss is the initial concept that we presented. That's the fraudulent concept that wealth perpetuates and accumulates because returns to capital are greater than real growth of the entire economy. 
And not only does Mr. Piketty fail to cite sources in his capital in the 21st century for very specific data, but as discussed earlier, conflates gross and net returns and then exaggerates gross returns. The average return to total capital across all publicly traded U.S. companies is actually negative. And of course, real GDP and GMP growth over time are positive. And further, in areas where income inequality is highest, as discussed earlier, there's a statistically insignificant negative relationship to inequality and GMP. That is that metro areas with higher degrees of income inequality actually have from a statistical significance standpoint an equal degree of economic growth and insignificantly where income inequality is higher, gross national product tends to be a little bit higher. As the rate of inequality increases, so does the rate of real economic growth. Yes, average returns to total capital amongst U.S. companies are negative 17%. Median is about 3.5%. And the mode, which across such a large data set is probably a really strong measure, is about 1.94%. The skew of the distribution is strongly negative. That is, you're more likely to have a negative return than you are to have a positive return and a large negative return. And even though the most commonly occurring and middle-of-the-road observations are both positive, the other thing that Mr. Piketty in Capital of the 21st Century forgot to adjust for is volatility and risk. And volatility of returns to total capital among public companies in the U.S. is extremely high. It's about 102%. Therefore, after adjusting for volatility, the dollar per return per dollar of risk is about 3.4 pennies. So per dollar of risk you re receive, if you use the median, if you use the median numbers, per dollar of risk that you take, you receive about 3.5 and, and 3 pennies per dollar of risk you take. And if you use the, the mode... It's only two pennies in return per dollar of risk that you, that, uh, that you take. And that's if you achieve the mode or the median. Now, of course, if you're meeting the average, you're earning a negative return on your total capital. So, you know, adjusting for risk, you're just losing money. High returns, so you have negative risk-adjusted returns. But higher returns to total capital above the median are rare and Frankly, they're highly sought after, and that actually creates diminishing returns as the capital becomes cheaper and cheaper. Very few investors, though, are able to achieve the outperformance, and it's demonstrated by the mode, the most commonly occurring, being lower than the median and the average being lower than the mode and the median, i.e. that negative skew. And slides 12 to 16 demonstrate this perfectly. So we now know that incomes are prices for labor. They're also known as wages. Relative and absolute mobility are greater for the top 60%. Children born in the top 60% have a greater chance of moving down, lower chance of, mo of moving, a greater chance of moving up, and a lower chance of moving down than those born in the top 20, 40, and more so amongst those in the top 20. Welfare systems highly redistributive, wealthy by a large do earn their money through wages and self-employment and companies are nowhere near as profitable as people think they are. Industries with higher barriers to entry make, make more money. 
Um, we also just learned that the return to total capital is negative on average, and that's on average, and that's skewed to the to, to the negative side. The most commonly occurring and the middle of the road are very low. I mean, historically lower than treasuries, uh, currently not lower than treasuries. You know, the, the median's about in line with 30-year, and uh, the mode's about in line with 10-year. So, not great. Mr. Pickett, he got it all wrong. Returns to total capital are not greater than uh, returns to the uh, total economy. Now, if you achieve the median or greater, maybe they are, but that means you're a skilled investor. There's a final point that I want to make here tonight, folks. Uh, higher income is, is actually more of a function of age and experience combined with a skill that's in low supply and high demand. And people who live in the top 20% tend to have larger household compositions. Basically, in the top 20% of households, there are over 60 million people and more two and even sometimes three or four fully employed adults in the home. But finally, there's a massive mobility over a 15 to 20-year period. And very rarely are people in the bottom quintile today, or in any quintile for that matter, in that same quintile 15, 20 years down the road. It's much harder to maintain a top 20% status than it is to move from the bottom, the bottom 20%, to the middle quintile. More people in the top 20% today will be in the middle quintile, middle quintile than people in the bottom quintile will still remain in the bottom. So the idea that if you're born poor, you're going to stay poor, that's a total myth. You're more likely to go from being born rich to being middle class than you are to be being born poor and staying poor. And often people are only in the top quintile in regards to uh, income for a year maybe two to five years throughout their entire life. That's very, very common. I think if you actually look at the numbers, I think like something like 30% or greater of people in the top 1% are only in the top 1% for one year. Typically has to do with inheriting money. Typically has to do or, or selling a home and uh, that they had owned for 20 or 30 years and now they're retiring and they're buying something smaller. That's the most com- that's common. And then... You also have people that are in the top quintile for, you know, or top 1%, top 20%, top 1%, whatever you want to say, for two, five, seven years at the end of their career. As they built up the experience, they've reached the highest point in their ladder and they're getting ready to retire. Um, this could also be a result of working a lot of overtime to try to catch up on retirement savings for the last couple of years of their career. Like I said earlier, it could be the result of selling investments, of, of receiving an inheritance. It could be the result of selling a home. It could be the result of a lawsuit. You get that one-year higher income from a lawsuit. It could be the result of winning gam- from, from a gambling. Um, there, it could be a result of a bonus that they received because their company did the, that they worked for did really well that one year. Whatever the case is, there are very few people that are in the top 1% for their entire lives or their entire careers. And finally, you know, income and wealth are different things. We got to understand that income is earnings for labor. And far too often we see it. We see our favorite athletes 
over relatively short careers, earning the tens of millions, if not over $100 million in income. Yet a few years after retirement, they're totally bankrupt. This is because they consume more than they earn. And they earn what they earn through their, their production and the relative value that society places on it. But they consume more than that. And they consume goods that, that are either used and lose their value or they waste and lose their value. They, they invest in assets that depreciate or lose their value. We all know the story of this. The liquor, the parties, the fancy vacations, the luxury cars, multiple homes that they overpay for and own mortgages on, other poor investments, lack of frugality regarding family and friends, and it results in no capital to accumulate at the end of each year or at the end, and or very little to accumulate when they retire. And they could retire suddenly because of an injury. And there's very little capital for them to continue to make an income after they retire. And often you see them go into another profession and maybe they do well, maybe they don't, but it's, it's a sad situation. But this is with people that are in the top one, one hundredth of the top one, one hundredth of the 1% in terms of income. Wealth is a function of producing more than you consume accumulating this capital and wisely investing it so that while you continue to accumulate, it's also accumulating for you by working for you, uh, putting, being put to work in investments in other opportunities. Maybe it's a real estate development through your bank. You know, that's what banks do. Banks, you, you lend the bank your money. They take that money and they lend it out and they pay you an interest rate. Now, obviously, right now, we know that's uh, not exactly how it works. But historically, that's how it was done when you invest in, in equity. All you're doing is you're taking capital and you're giving it to a business. Now, if you're investing in equity that is publicly traded equity on what's called a secondary market, like the stock market, what you're, what you're doing is you're providing capital to somebody else who provided capital or bought the security from somebody else who eventually down the road provided capital to that business to grow. And you're providing them liquidity in the hopes that over the long term or over the short term or over a specific period of time, whatever your time horizon is, that security will either rise in value or through dividends will produce an income or will get bought by another company or any number of scenarios where you will receive a return on your investment. That's what you're hoping for. That's the same thing, you know, the difference between a bank is a bank guaranteed you a certain interest rate. And it used to be that they guaranteed you a certain interest rate that was decent enough to accumulate capital. And they did so by lending it out to other people who could use that capital while you were working on whatever it was. Maybe you didn't need to use that capital and you're still self-employed. You just didn't need it anymore. You had excess. You're happy with what you were doing. Maybe it was from your job you had access, excess capital and you want to continue to do that job, but you're putting your money in the bank, the bank's lending it out to somebody else who's doing a different job or a company that's building a different business that is able to provide you a return while you're working. So accumulating that capital, investing it wisely, 
investing that capital in opportunities and or operators that will earn a real return on that capital that's greater than the inflation rate, and hopefully significantly so. When you do that, the wealth accumulates, you add more to it, those returns, what's called compound, and compounding returns are often referred to referred to by Warren Buffett as uh, one of the most powerful for- forces on earth. Uh, and re- particularly that is true in regards to, to, uh, to uh, accumulating wealth over time as return. When you receive a return on $1,000, see you sur- receive a 10% return on $1,000. That's now $1,100. When you receive a 10% return on that $1,100, it's now $1,211, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Down the road, 30, 40 years, it becomes worth a lot more. So compounding and continuing to work and accumulate capital and produce more than you consume, investing that wisely in opportunities that will earn a return on your investment that's greater than inflation, so you outpace, you're earning real purchasing power for the future, and doing that over and over and over again over a a long period of time, that's how you create wealth. Now, even those that are in the bottom 20 or bottom 40% of income earners can achieve wealth through frugality and through wise investments. You got to take some risk. While even those in the top one one hundredth of one one hundredth of one percent of income earners can find themselves broke, and their heirs can find themselves with absolutely no inheritance at all. Income and wealth are different things. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope you enjoyed tonight's show. Uh, this is the Macro View. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at the macro view and at Facebook and it's facebook.com slash the macro view shares with your friends and family. We're trying to start build, you know, we're trying to build this logic movement. Uh, we want to make it insight that can have a real positive impact on society by getting the facts out there and have a source to easily debunk the common fallacies that the media, that politicians, that people that don't know what they're talking about and just regurgitating talking points from the media and politicians love to preach and far too often they perpetuate people buy them and they turn into uh, you know they turn into disastrous public policy we got to avoid that it's what the macro view is all about and what we're trying to do here is, is like I said just build a logic movement get the facts out there and have a, a, a easy to access source our website's going to help to do that over time, and it's just going to get better and better and better. There are going to be some absolutely incredible things in store, and if you're, you're an avid listener of the Macro View, you will be the first to know about them. But there are going to be some absolutely incredible things in store coming up in the next six months or so. Um, so stay tuned. I know I've been uh, – the last couple of weeks I was involved in – I had to move my apartment and I've just been really busy at work uh, with my business and we're getting ready to, uh, we're we're getting close to some really good things there, really amazing things there as well. So that's why I haven't done an episode in a couple of weeks. 
going to start doing the weekly episodes from now on on Thursdays. Uh, the time still may vary. It just it, it really is going to be somewhat dependent on what's going on at work and when I'm able to get get home and the planning around that. Um, and I you know I got my business comes first, people. Hopefully, I can start making some money off of this. And uh, they can supplement each other and it'll be something where I can dedicate a little bit more time of my personal time and possibly even get a a couple of staff members to help make this the absolute greatest experience for our listeners. For now, you got to kind of deal with me here. I'm doing this on a Yeti for my apartment uh, with plugged into my desktop here. Uh, Try to do the best job that we can. The key is the content. You got to listen to the numbers. You got to get them in your head. You got to preach them to other people. Numbers don't lie. The facts don't lie. These are the facts. And and what we're seeing is we're seeing, you know, people buy into something and almost paralyze themselves as a part of it and victimize themselves and turn themselves into victims as as a as a result. We can't have that. Get the facts out there. Mobility is still great. It has been great. Over a 10 to 15-year period, you're likely to move up in income quintiles until you reach the top, and then it's very likely that you stay there for very long. It's very unlikely that you stay there for, for very long once you reach the top. you got to understand that, too. There, there's never a discussion when we're talking about this income inequality matter. There's never a discussion about who makes up that top 1% or the top 10% or top 20% and how long they've made that up and who was in it last year and who was in it five years ago. And the the fact of the matter is wealthy people actually disproportionately from investing lose money. And 2015, which was a fairly flat year, the top, I believe the top 400 wealthiest people lost $19 billion in aggregate. So it's not the, the, the myths that are out there false. They're false. It's just not true. You got to look at the real numbers. You got to look at statistics and we're going to do our best. Like I said, there's going to be great things to come (laughs) over the next six months. We're going to do our best to really deliver those statistics and the data to you in the most easily digestible manner possible in plain English, where even the person who doesn't understand this stuff at all can at least get a grasp on it. We're going to try to do that here at The Macro View. That's what we're all about. Thanks for tuning in. Follow us on Twitter at The Macro View. Check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash The Macro View. You can find our episodes. If you didn't catch us tonight, you're listening somewhere else. We're on Google Play. Um, or if you're not able to listen to the next episode, you want to find out where to catch the next episode. Next episode will be live Thursday. Next week, it's on privatizing Social Security, a passion of mine. We're, you're going to love that episode. It's going to be a great episode. Don't miss it. But you can also find it on, on Google Play the next day, on Podbean the next day. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, distribution channels. We put it up on our Facebook page. We share it everywhere on Twitter. Um, you, you'll, you can find it easily. You can share it with your friends. You can share it with your family. There's a number of different ways to watch and listen. Podbean has a great app. Google Play has a great app. Podbean podcasts are totally free on google play there's a number of ways for you to listen to our podcast and for you to share it with your friends get it out there it's really important this this information if people had this information 
they can smile more often walking down the street, knowing that things aren't as bad as, as uh, the media and as, as politicians like to make them seem. Things are generally getting better. There's some things and, and some atrocities in today's uh, world that we gotta got to solve. And there's some grandiose misuse of government involving uh, itself in the economy. We've got to solve that. We've got to show the numbers and the facts to, to debunk that. I may do a pop-up episode here uh, pretty soon. I don't like to get political on this show, but, you know, the debate happened. Um, it's a hot topic, so fuck it. Why not? Um, so I might do a pop-up episode in the next couple of days here and uh, talk about the debate and go, go, you know, segment by segment. It might take two or three hours, but go segment by segment and actually explain in economic terms if the policy proposition that they are hinting towards were to come to fruition, what they're actually saying. And we'll talk maybe a little bit about the practicality of it and what can and can't actually happen with uh, Congress and a whole bunch of other things. But I want to, I want to really just kind of focus on the economic messages that came across and what they're actually saying. And then I want to talk about how inept, both of the candidates that we have this year are. It's, it's, it's absolutely it's depressing. Um, luckily, I live in California. I don't have to choose. Uh, it's likely that the Democratic nominee will win in a landslide, so whatever. I'm not, it doesn't matter to me. I don't have a choice in the state of California. They're going to win by a landslide here. So it is what it is, and uh, both of them are, are kind of atrocious, and we will uh, probably do a pop-up episode because I want to kind of go through and talk a little bit about the economic implications and what they're actually saying and, and what they're actually saying. And both of them say a lot. Both of them say a lot. So thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to share us with your friends and family. Help us build this logic movement, and uh, before you know it, it will get really, really big. We'll be able to, to – make money from advertisers and we'll be able to put that money back into uh, growing this, uh, this, this podcast and the movement and the, uh, you know, the website and, and the kind of quality uh, information and the deliverable mechanism that, that we offer through our website and potentially apps and whatnot. Uh, the more money we make, the more people that listen, the more money we can make off of this, so please listen, please share it with your friends. That way we can make it bigger and we can get more people to want to listen. We can make it more entertaining. Maybe, hell, who knows? Maybe we could add video. A lot of things we could do. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. The macro view, number of ways to find us. Very easy to find. Thanks for tuning in tonight. If you're catching us the next day, thanks for tuning in. Love my followers. Love my listeners. Keep tuning in and keep sharing it with your friends. Have a great rest of your evening. I'm sure most of you all are uh, ready to go to sleep unless you're in a different country. But uh, I will uh, say goodnight for the night. Take care, everybody.